Welcome to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Joining me on today's show is Sanjay Rawal. Sanjay spent 15 years working on human rights campaigns globally. He also ran initiatives for acclaimed artists and philanthropists, one of whom encouraged him to start making films. His first film, his first documentary, Food Chains, made in 2014, was produced by Eva Longoria and Eric Schlosser and narrated by Forrest Whitaker. The film won numerous awards, was released theatrically in over 40 cities by Sunscreen Media and was eventually acquired by Netflix. So you can actually go and view that film there. We talk about it briefly in this episode. Sanjay's second effort took a sharp turn into non-traditional filmmaking Applying narrative cinematic techniques, he directed an expedition film called 3100, Run and Become, uh, which is now available on online platforms like Amazon Prime. This is such an interesting, I mean, Sanjay has such an interesting life and story um, that that really, he he sort of outlays uh, some of it uh, on this show, but he's got an incredible story and journey. But we really focus in on this this documentary that he recently produced and released called 3100 Run to Become because the the documentary focuses in on athletes that that run 3100 miles in under 50 days. So there is a a local marathon here in New York that actually happens out in Queens. I didn't even know about this that where where these athletes from around the world will gather to to try and run 3100 miles in under 50 days and the 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 record holder has done it in 40 days he's run 3100 miles in in just over 40 days and we actually talk about him because he's the star uh the sort of like the main character the protagonist of this film now the interesting thing about this outside of the you know incredible athletic feats that that these people are capable of doing the film documents uh, the, the sort of creation of this marathon. So Sanjay is not originally from New York. He moved to New York to work with and study from his spiritual teacher, Sri Chimnoy. And uh, Sri is, is um, a foreigner. He's moved to New York City in 1964, and uh, he teaches meditation. He teaches mindfulness. He's since passed away in 2007. But he, he taught students from all over the world uh, in, in New York. And the interesting thing is that Sri is the one that started this 3,100-mile marathon. A spiritual teacher started this 3,100-mile marathon. Now, I was completely blown away by this. And so I started to do research on this guy, Sri Chimnoy. And it turns out that he was an advisor for some of the world's top Olympic athletes, professional athletes in, in a bunch of different fields from uh, from powerlifting to Olympic gold medalists to uh, bodybuilders to, you know, major league baseball players, they would go to him to get his perspective because he had such an interesting and profound way of looking at performance and overcoming obstacles. And so this whole podcast is actually about how we can tap into flow states how we can overcome obstacles and have internal victories. And really uh, paralleling 
our physical limitations, our perceived physical limitations, and being able to see, okay, here's what my limitation, I believe what my limitation is, and being able to use that limitation as a platform for uh, for being able to find a deeper sense of self-transcendence. And it's such an interesting concept to merge performance and spirituality, uh, to merge athletics and internal self-awareness, internal self-transcendence. And so this whole podcast interview, Sanjay really outlines some of the lessons that he learned along the way from doing ultra marathons, but shares some of the wisdom that he gained from doing this documentary. And the stories in this are absolutely incredible. I mean, some of the feats that these these uh, ultra athletes have embarked on are, are just mind-blowing to me. And I, I really love this conversation, and I hope that you do as well. Uh, before I bring Sanjay on, just a quick reminder to all the guys, we have a few spots left for the men's weekend. Um, in Vancouver and in New York, in upstate New York. Uh, One's in August, one's in September. I won't go into too much detail, but if you've been thinking about it, please apply. Speaking of doing internal deep work, speaking of overcoming your perceived limitations and breaking through your internal boundaries and being able to have a better relationship, a deeper connection to purpose and self, that's what those weekends are all about. You will be pushed physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually in every single way possible. So if you're ready for a good challenge, definitely head on to mantalks.com and check out the Men's Work Weekend, and I'll see you there. So without any further delay, please welcome Mr. Sanjay Rawal. Thanks so much, Connor. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, same same here. I'm, I'm excited to have you on the show. I don't, I'm not sure if I've had anybody in your field, anybody that's done the type of work that you've done in the world on my show before. And so I'm excited to kind of dig in and really jam on a few things. Um, but first, I have to I have to start off by asking the question, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. That's a great question. And it, a tiny bit of background, I, I ran competitively as a, as a teenager and in my early 20s, Fast forward to 2015, when I'm 41 years old, I'm prepping, doing kind of background research for a film I'm about to, to direct, which has now since come out, called 3100 Run and Become, about the world's longest running race, 3,100 miles. And in order to, to make the movie, there's no way I'm going to actually do that race, but I want to understand the mindset, uh, not just of running long distances, which I'd done before, but running for days. And so I entered a, a, a six-day race, which uh, was held in Queens, New York City. For those in New York City, um, it's near the U.S. Tennis Center where the U.S. Open is held. And six-day races uh, are usually on one-mile loops, and you basically are trying to log as many miles as you can across those 144 hours, uh, sleeping in tents on the course. There's kitchens set up and food constantly being churned out. The course is open 24 hours a day. Um, so I, I line up at the start, and I do really, really well for the first five or six hours. As as it happens in life, you know, you tend to get advice from people who don't necessarily have the best uh, experience. Um, so in in running races, I've learned, you know, not to take advice really from from anybody, and I, I learned it from 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 this particular experience because one fellow there who looked like a great runner, and obviously looks can be deceiving told me I was going out too fast and that I needed to walk. Um, so I walked for the next six or seven hours and in doing so started using different muscles than 
I'd, I'd trained for and I pulled a hamstring. So about 12 hours in, I was looking at another 132 hours of movement with a pulled hamstring. And I, I was about to drop out. At the same time, I began noticing that the vibe of this race was was not competitive in the way that I, I was used to. People weren't racing each other. Uh, they were racing themselves and they were kind of much more inwardly focused and much more patient. And there were people that were more than 70 years old doing this race and you know their totals for those six days would not stack up against the, the leaderboard, but they weren't competing against other people. They were competing against themselves. And I was forced in those hours of injury assessment to really face or to really understand why I, I ran and, you know, what, in a sense, in a weird way, what the kind of purpose of my existence was and what my flaws were. What, was I doing things for outer recognition? Was I doing things in life to, to stack up my achievements against other people? Or was I really doing things for the joy of it? And up until that point, I'd like to think that I was in the game, whether it was film or, or, or other jobs, you know, I was in the game you know, for, for selfless reasons to kind of get personal fulfillment. And this was a major test. And so for the next five days, I hobbled around the course. It wasn't an injury that, that, you know, was debilitating. I couldn't run, but I could walk and I could walk with enthusiasm and I could look at this experience as something unique and I could reframe the entire purpose of why I was doing it for inner fulfillment. And as it happens, I, the, the, the injury healed after the fifth day, and I was able to really run at my capacity on the sixth day. But at the same time, I feel like that sixth day of the race was so much more fluid because I had built intention uh, in those five days or so of, of injury. Uh, I'd built up um, cheerfulness. I'd built up enthusiasm. I'd built this kind of childlike quality of not having any expectation of the result of this particular activity. In this case, it was a race. And in that last 24 hours, I was able to, to run with a sense of joy that I had never experienced, not just in running, but kind of in life in general. Mm. It's, you know, it's so interesting that the, I mean, there's ultra marathons, there's ultra running. I mean, a 3,100 mile race sounds like impossible. Really, when I hear, <laughs> when I hear it, I think about going for a run through the streets of New York and doing a couple miles and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much done. Uh, but I, you know, recently I just read the book. I'm not too sure if you're familiar with it, um, by David Goggins called you can't hurt me. And he's a former, oh, of course. Yeah. Former Navy SEAL. And he, you know, talks about his ultra marathon races and some of the adversity that he faced there and the, the, the mental toughness. And it's such an interesting mindset for me. So I'm curious from your perspective, sort of a twofold question. One, what got you into doing these more long distance races in the first place? And and two, what's the what's the sort of mindset that you have to have for these races? So I, I'm I'm gonna reframe the 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 question if you don't mind. Mm -hmm. Um you know for for I say shorter races like you know, 24 hour races or hundred milers or, you know, um, 50 milers, you know, you can get through those types of races with determination. Mm. And th there are periods where people are like mind over matter, but, and I think this is to the heart of your movement, 
let's let's talk about it. Let's talk about this this type of like ultra endurance event. You know, looking looking at it from the heart, not looking at it from a place of of focus, of concentration, of maybe negation, of guts, of will, of power. Let's look at it from a place of joy, enthusiasm, love. There, there's a way to kind of gut through the suffering one experiences in a 24-hour race. But the 3,100-mile race, uh, the self-transcendence 3,100-mile, as it's as it's called, um, is the world's longest ultramarathon, and it takes place all around a half-mile loop in the heart of Queens. People might say, like, why a half-mile loop? Well, you know, in ultra, ultra, ultra-distance events, scenery all fades away, especially when you're trying to do 60-plus miles a day. And the most important thing is to stay in a heartfelt flow. And on a logistical um, uh, perspective, that means like not having any traffic lights, having food, aid, water, rest stations, basically, you know, when you need it. And in this case, it's it's every half a mile, you come back around to the main aid station area. So in essence, with the race that's that takes place across 52 days, there's an aspect of patience which people don't have to experience in most other races other than perhaps the Tour de France. But even then, the Tour de France is a stage race. So, you know, people are, are only riding for a, a certain number of miles a day, which obviously varies. Here in the 3100, the course is open 18 hours a day, and your goal is to, to hammer out as many miles as you can. There's a lot of suffering that happens on the physical level. And I, I think this is to, the experience that a lot of people have had doing endurance activities. But no one has the sheer willpower um, to get through 52 days of suffering. You have to have the ability to like consciously and concretely transform that suffering into joy or to pull out a sense of bliss from your heart that completely negates or overwhelms physical pain. I mean, this might sound like woo-woo kind of mystical uh, ungrounded um, BS, but our movie 3100 Run and Become looks at traditional running cultures from those in the Southwest of the US, like the Navajo, to the Kalahari Bushmen, to the famed marathon monks of Japan, and looks at ultra endurance events as a way to experience bliss and using that bliss to propel oneself into realms of achievements far beyond the the, the scope of uh, possibility. Interesting. And so the, do you find that in these um, ultra endurance or, you know, incredibly long races that there are points where you experience a form of transcendence where, where you are experiencing something that, that people flow states or, or, However you want to, however you want to call that, where you sort of move past uh, a physical form and, and into something that is just joyful and like maybe describe for the the listeners because I think it's I think it's conceptually maybe a little bit challenging for for people that haven't done uh, ultra marathons or haven't run or experienced triathlons or you know done these sort of things where they're pushing their bodies and their physical forms to such a degree where it sort of forces you almost like into the mind in such a way that that you experience something different from what you would normally experience within your mind and so maybe just describe your experience if you can on on one of your one of your favorite races 
I, 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 I love the question. Um, the, the, when people talk about the flow state, it's, it's kind of like a supramental um, experience where the mind is switched off and you're feeling a deeper pulse, a deeper rhythm. And very often that comes from the, the, the spiritual energy center that's associated with the physical heart, the, the, the spiritual heart. More often than not, when we do shorter races, every once in a while, or, or e- even play team sports, you know, somebody can have a momentary experience where they've, they've generated or channeled a capacity that they haven't experienced in their day-to-day training. But when it comes to ultra, ultra distance events, that type of capacity has to be cultivated in training. The, the Navajo and Southwestern Native American cultures basically look at running as a form of prayer. They believe that when you run, your feet are praying to Mother Earth, you're breathing in Father Sky, you're asking them, you're, you're praying to them for their blessings, and you're showing them that you're willing to work for those blessings. So in that sense, one can enter into a flow state in the first 10 steps of a run. Now, for most of us who weren't raised in those cultures, it takes a little bit more effort to, to understand the pathway of getting into that flow state. But for those who are experienced with meditation, you know, the people understand that you don't necessarily enter into your deepest meditation in the first second of your daily practice. Um, and you might not enter into that deepest state every single time, but you know the pathway that you need to take within your mind and your heart to get you to the place where you can experience that sensation of inner bliss. And so when it comes to races like the 3,100 mile race, people don't want to do it just for the remote possibility of having one experience across 52 days. Uh, Running, as it turns out, is so embedded in who we are as human beings from our several million year history as, as Homo sapiens that you can get to a state, and it usually only happens after three or four or five days of, of running, where you can't escape this flow state, where when you start running, you're automatically in it. And that's, that's the reason why people do the 3100. It's, it's for this spiritual experience, um, this constant spiritual experience, uh, not just in the heart or in the mind, but an experience that combines all of our, our, our being, our body, mind, heart, and soul into one collective. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's fascinating because when I hear you talk about it, and again, not being an, uh, an ultra athlete in any way, shape, or form, uh, it almost sounds to me like a form of Vipassana, right? Where, you know, Vipassana, Vipassana meditation retreats, you go and you sit for 10 days, and it sort of forces you into this experience. It forces you to, to sit in silence and to be in the mind. And, and while, you know, it's, it's sort of the counter to that, right? It's rather than just sitting and not doing anything and being in silence, your it's like the running version of that and so w- what drew you to this in the first place i'm always fascinated like when i listened to david goggins book the first thing that came to my mind was like why like why what compels you to go and run a hundred miles or more that, and again that's that's a great question I, I i ran track and i ran the 800 meters which is a half a mile and and the the 1600 meters which is effectively a mile and i was very competitive. And at the same time, I got no joy out of it whatsoever. And when I moved to New York at the age of 22, I happened to move to a neighborhood that that 
you know, was, is where the 3,100 mile race is held. And the race was actually started by an Indian spiritual teacher, Sri Chinmoy. And he was the reason why I moved from California to New York City. I basically wanted to commit myself to an inner education uh, and to learn as much as I could about myself spiritually uh, under his tutelage. At the same time, uh, unlike a lot of spiritual teachers of, of, of this era, he really felt that the progress of the soul and the heart had to go hand in hand with the progress of the body and that sports and running in particular could be an incredible way to experience a level of transcendence or achievement that is, is pretty hard to do on a day-to-day -day basis just in a contemplative um, practice of, of prayer and meditation. So I, I, I moved to Jamaica Hills, Queens in the summer of 1997, which was the first running of the 3100. And that race, it scared the living daylights out of me because I mean, I, I, I knew of, of like the pain in running a, a really hard mile or, or two mile race. And the idea of running 3,000 times that or 1,500 times a two mile was just, I, 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 had, I had no way of, of comprehending what that, what that would feel like or be like. But that was because I approached running from a, the... I hesitate to use the word incorrect, but in hindsight, from an incorrect vantage. And across the years, I saw people not just completing the 3,100 mile race, but coming back one, two, three, five, ten 10 times in a row. And the protagonist in our film, 3,100 Run and Become, which is actually available all over on Amazon and iTunes, um, is a man named Ashprihanal Alto, uh, a Finnish paper boy who this summer, um, right as we speak, is is doing his 15th running of the 3,100. 15 times 3,100 miles. I mean, that's and just... That's not for the sake of physical yeah. achievement because yeah, he's done it before. Yeah, I'm, that's it's, insane. It's for the sake of an inner experience. Well, so he, well, from from my understanding, because I did some background research on this because I, I, I admittedly, I'd never heard of the 3,100 mile uh, race before, even though I'm in New York now, although I'm a newbie. And so from my understanding, he he currently, this gentleman, uh, Alto, he currently holds the record for finishing the uh, 3,100 miles in 40 days and nine hours and six minutes. Um, that's that, almost 77 miles a day. Yeah. <laughs> like it really is. It's one of those things where where it puts things into scale, right? Like when you think about when you think about somebody like Jeff Bezos and you hear that he has $140 billion dollars. And you look at your savings account and you're like, all right, I can't even comprehend what $140 billion would do or what I could do with it. Like it's, it's, it's hard to fathom because it's such a huge gap between where the majority of us are and where the extreme is. And so to do, you know, 77 miles per day on average almost for 40 days, you know, for almost 40 and a half days. Uh, first off, I mean, I have so many questions because I'm clearly like flabbergasted by this. Um, but just before I move on, have you participated in the race as a as a participant yet? I, I haven't, but uh, I, I it's it's on my bucket list. I'm I'm 44 now, and I definitely want to do the race before I turn 50. Well, you have done quite a number of ultra races and long distance races, and so I'm I'm curious. 
Like I wouldn't even know how to prep for something like a 3,100 mile race or even a, even an ultra race. And so what type of preparation, like how do you prep your, yourself mentally, emotionally, physically for this type of race? Not, not that we need to get into like the granular details of what specifically happens. I think I'm more curious as to the, the mental, emotional, and spiritual preparation that, that goes into this and how that actually affects your life on a daily basis. So there, there are three types of, of ultra distance races. There's what we just call an, an ultra marathon, which is a race above 26.2 miles. And that could, that could be a, a 50 miler or a hundred miler. Um, then there are things called multi day races, like races that actually take several days, more, two or more days. And the 3100 is a multi day. And in essence, the 3100 is, is, is in its own category because it's, it's 50 or so days. Um, so when you're training for an ultra, like a hundred miler, for example, you know, it's, you, you're pushing and pushing cause you're, you're going for time and you're trying to finish the, that, that hundred miles in as fast as you can. And you're training on the physical side for being able to eat on the run and for being able to run through some pretty severe physical challenges because you're, you're staying pretty close to the edge. Um, and you're constantly being thrown different elements. Most of those hundred milers take places on, take, pl takes place on trails. Uh, so there's a, a variation of environment. You could be in mud, you can be in rain and you can be in snow, for example. You know, you, you really need to, to cultivate flexibility to push on through an unexpected set of challenges and to push on through really, really quickly and really powerfully. But when you get to this multi-day stage, 48 hours, 72 hours, six days, 10 days, it's much more about patience and realizing that you can't, you can't win the race the first day, uh, but you could lose the race the first day. At the same time, you know, you can push in those races because, you know, after two days, you're done or after three days, you're done. But when it comes to the 3,100 mile race, you know, it's, it's a sense of releasing your capacity in stages and developing both a sense of joy and a sense of patience, which you don't really need in other distances. Again, the, the, the first set is, is the hundred milers are, are done with, with sheer determination spiritually. Whereas the 3,100, it's like you have to be able to find a constant sense of joy. Otherwise you'll be overwhelmed by the distance and the pain. And so I think the last part of what you just said is is quite intriguing. So you have to find a certain sense of joy within you in order to move through the the challenge that you're facing on all levels with within this type of race. And so was that part of hopefully I say his name right, uh, Sri Chimnoy uh, Chimnoy's teaching? Is that, am I saying that right? That's that's perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, 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 absolutely. Because um, and the, and reaching, yeah. oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say because one of the things that I you know like when I was researching you and this work because this is a whole field that I don't really know anything about and so I actually spent some time sort of digging into you and you know your former teacher's background and and he he had um, supported from my understanding former Olympians 
uh, in terms of like, it's almost like pre mindset training. I think he had worked, Carl Lewis had worked with him or sort of uh, used, used him to advise him. And he advocated, you know, this sort of self transcendence through the almost like the expansion of, of consciousness in order to be able to move through the mind's perceived limitations of what the body is capable of or what we are capable of emotionally or mentally or physically. And so maybe can you just expand a little bit on some of his teachings and how that has, uh, how you've applied that to, to your life? That, that's a, of, 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 I think that was a, a very important part of his teachings. Um, understanding that the human being, man or woman, really has no limit. The question is, if you want to get into that state where you can challenge impossibility, what faculties and what parts of your being do you need to be in touch with? In, in the West, we really focus on the mind and the body. In, in the East, we really focus on the development of the heart, of love, of, of joy, of what we see in the West is as more feminine qualities, um, but that, that's erroneous because none of these qualities are, are either masculine or feminine. At the same time, one of Sri Chinmoy's like hallmarks was demonstrating that inner peace or love could be a source of outer power, that you could defy physical challenges um, by being able to channel silence, uh, not just determination or grit or aggression or ambition, but pure silence. And he worked with Carl Lewis. He's, he worked with a number of athletes and musicians to help them develop their own access to that fount of silence within and learn how to channel that into an, an outer achievement. For example, you know, Carl Lewis, you know, said that one of his greatest achievements in, in terms of running um, or in terms of preparation for running, was his ability at the starting line to literally drown out everything else and enter into such a state of concentration that he was entirely focused on the sound of the starter's pistol. Hmm. He could wipe all the other erroneous, extraneous thoughts from his mind so that he could you know, start as quickly and as most dynamically as possible. And and that doesn't come from most Western approaches to sports. That comes from this Eastern aspect of developing contemplative um, practices like like prayer and meditation. Sri Chinmoy at the same time was very close to a number of weightlifters like Bill Pearl, Frank Zane, people who focused on the perfection of the body. Frank Zane was one of the only professional bodybuilders to have ever beaten Arnold Schwarzenegger, and he won uh, the Mr. Universe contest in 1977. And in a nutshell, Frank said that his preparation for that contest wasn't just perfecting his body, but he knew that if he had, he knew intuitively that if he repeated his, his mantra, a very special uh, spiritual incantation given to him by another teacher, that if he repeated that mantra a million times in the prep up to the uh, Mr. Olympia, he'd have the inner uh, focus and the inner ability to achieve his highest potential, if if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, it makes total sense. And I'm interested in, uh, I mean, I'm interested in knowing how that, how that mantra or how this mindset plays into the actual race itself. And then, and then maybe how the sort of average person 
can integrate some of these pieces because clearly they're powerful, right? I mean, the, just the just the thought of being able to run a race in you know thirty one hundred miles in forty days, and you know being able to tap into this joy that that we're talking about, being able to t- to tap into this um, sort of self transcendent self awareness to move past our perceived physical limitations, I would imagine has an application on a, on a daily basis for the average person. And so maybe if you can try and string those, those two things together, I think that might be helpful because I think for many people, I would imagine if I was listening to this, I'd be like, okay, that's very cool. That's, that's amazing. And it's astounding that there are these, that there are these outliers uh, out there that are on the fringe and, and doing these incredible things. But how do I integrate some of the wisdom or some of the you know special sauce that they seem to have um, acquired? And so maybe if you can just touch on that briefly, I think that'd be important. I, I think I think running is a, is a great example of 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 what we're talking about in, in the sense that you know what what, uh, what we're talking about in terms of the thirty one hundred and these ultra distance events and what 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 David Goggins experiences they they do seem like outliers, but they're they're outliers only because Goggins and Ashbihanal and others, they're entering into this process with a totally different intention. I, I, I can guarantee to almost every listener who, who runs or jogs on a regular or even semi-regular basis that, you know, if they want to get something spiritual out of that pursuit, it, it it's not just going to happen because they sign up for a long distance race. It's going to happen because they are, they, they practice that type of intention in their day to day training. Uh, and, and so for running, for, in running, for example, it's like I, I could and I used to head out on my runs, you know, with, with, with my, my iPhone and with, you know, a playlist and, it was a, a, an activity that I was just hoping to get through. I was going to do a workout. I knew what it was at the beginning. I knew what time I wanted to do. So it was it was broken up into a, in, into a very mental uh, state, for example. But through spending time with Navajo runners, I began to realize that if I want running to be a spiritual practice, I want if I want to get the fruits of spiritual practices out of running. I have to open myself up to those experiences. So I, I ditch the music and I try to feel that running is a much more prayerful activity. I try to channel this idea of running being a prayer with my, right, being a prayer to Mother Earth with my feet. I try to consciously breathe in Father Sky or breathe in the heavens. I try to feel things in my running, like love, joy, peace. I try to take inspiration from nature around me. And I try to run happy. I try to be happy when I run. And that transition or transformation of intention in my daily practice of running has totally changed what I get out of it. And that's that's an example of Frank Zane as well. It's like, you know, you can you can lift weights for physical perfection, but what does it mean to lift weights as a spiritual practice? You know, you can inherently do anything and get something spiritually or psychologically out of it, but that doesn't come because of magic. That doesn't come by accident. It comes by changing your intention and wanting to get something different out of that activity. So in a nutshell, it's like, 
almost anything we do, particularly sports, we know we can reframe. You know, we can go from wanting to destroy our opponents to wanting to use a sport or an activity to better ourselves. And each person in their activities, if they reframe from outer competition to inner competition, self-transcendence, bringing out our best capacities, you know, you begin to see that it's not just about blisters. It's not just about pain. It's about how you approach those problems, how you transform those problems, and how you learn from those problems. Yeah, interesting. I mean, it's it, it sounds like a bit of a different approach. You know, again, I, I'm, I'm sort of going off the assumption that some of the listeners have listened to the, the David Goggins book, but, you know, his approach is almost like putting himself through an immense amount of, of physical pain and and adversity to try and understand his childhood, which was just wrought with physical pain and adversity. And it almost sounds like what you're saying is is a bit counter to that in the sense of, you know, if we're going to go do these things, if we're going to do life, if we're going to show up to our work, if we're going to run 100 miles, why would we do them from a place of of suffering, of just trying to quote unquote, push through the pain, why not sort of do it with, with a, a, a lens or an approach of joy and bliss and love and, and being able to feel the interconnectivity of everything. And I, I think that approach is, is so interesting. And, you know, I, I think the, I remember reading an article on, uh, on, on the New York times a f- quite a few years ago, and it was the study of what differentiated really extraordinary leaders from just normal leaders. And the article was all about uh, relentless optimism. And the article was basically saying that leaders that execute and act with relentless optimism in in as many uh, circumstances as possible on a daily basis are far more influential, far more successful than than other leaders. And they seem to be capable of doing things that most leaders uh, can't seem to accomplish. And so, you know, what I hear you saying within this, uh, within this vein, within, you know, this ultra running style and, and, and you know, running 3,100 miles or 100 miles or whatever it is, is that when we bring this relentless optimism, when we, when we try and find the joy and the interconnectivity, not only within the world around us and within the activity that we're doing, but the interconnectivity within the self and being able to being able to sort of transcend the self and feel everything around us, that there is this immense amount of joy and presence that can come out of that. And I'm curious from your experience, how that, how that translates on a daily basis, like does, does every part of life then become a training ground? And how, how people, you know, these, these athletes that you follow around in, in the documentary and 3100 run and become, when you follow these athletes around, is, is it a daily practice of finding joy in all the small moments? Like, how, how did you see that unfold? So in, in the, the first experience that I shared about my, my, my six-day race, I was forced to do exactly what, what you referenced uh, with regard to the New York Times article. You know, after 12 hours, when I was injured, I could either quit, I could either, and, 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 and quit with, with a, a sense of extreme dissatisfaction. Or I could try to milk the experience for another type of satisfaction. And I, I knew that after 12 hours of that six-day race, I wasn't going to get the satisfaction of, of doing, you know, 
70, 80, 90 miles a day and, and you know, doing 500, 550 miles, that's, the satisfaction had to come from a different standpoint or a different place. And the question was like, how was I going to transform this unfortunate experience into something that would make me happy? And, and it was specifically through that idea of unrelenting optimism. You know, I had to kind of like change the reason why I was doing the activity and I had to bring out a sense of enthusiasm and a sense of joy, you know, to be able to, to take steps in that right direction. And I think this, this is, you know, this comes to your question there, we, we in, in training, there's always problems, you know, whether it's, it's, it's training for something physical or whether you're at work trying to accomplish a project, you're always going to be beset with things that you didn't expect. The question is, you know, how do we approach those issues when, when you, when we're in the mind per se, um, in the analytical part of, of, of our, our being, uh, we tend to magnify those problems. You know, the mind will turn a blister into something that, you know, could ruin your race. Your mind will tell you, you've got a blister, you've got this issue, you should just stop, you should just quit. The mind constantly makes us doubt ourselves. The heart, for example, those, and, and, and the place within us that generates that optimism, that enthusiasm, those positive childlike qualities of joy and, and, and bliss and eagerness, that part of our being gives us a different type of energy to say, hey, that happened. Let's not even call it a problem. Let's call it an experience. And let's figure out how to triumph over this momentary speed bump. Let's try to see what it would take to push past this issue and continue towards our our journey's goal. Yeah, I like it. And I really appreciate the the insight on that and just the, the personal uh the personal story to that. I, I want to come back to to this this concept of you know self transcendence and, and using uh, something like running, and I want to hear a little bit more about how you interviewed uh, spiritual teachers and and different you know different walks of life and sort of tied this all together in the documentary. But just for time's sake, I also want to just get a little bit into some of your other initiatives. You've done some absolutely incredible things. You know you worked on quite a few human rights campaigns globally. Um, you know, you, you produce a documentary. Your first documentary was called Food Chains back in 2014. Um, and, and that was produced alongside of Eva Longoria and, and Eric Schlossler. And, I, and, and narrated by Forrest Whitaker, which I absolutely, I, I love him. Um, I'm, I'm just curious if you can give maybe the listeners a little bit of context for First and foremost, some of the human rights campaigns that that you've worked on and and what drew you into that field, and then I'd love to hear a little bit more about food chains. So I I, I studied science in, in in college, and you know, there's no major. I think at least there was no major in the '90s that would have led me into um, you know international development, humanitarian service, human rights. But when I moved to New York City in 1997 to study with Sri Chinmoy, I he really helped me. Exp- and the concept I had of service. At the same time, many of his close friends included Mother Teresa, uh, Desmond Tutu, Nelson Mandela. So I began with the opportunities to, from a, from a distance, and, and sometimes on a personal level, work on humanitarian projects with some of the most lauded and appreciated human beings on earth in that time. And had a chance to work for Desmond Tutu and gradually began working for actors, musicians, philanthropists, 
governments, human rights organizations that were trying to find ways for the most marginalized or the most impacted people on the ground to tell their own stories. And I don't necessarily just mean it from a media standpoint, but for those who know anything about charity or aid, very often the person or the organization that has the dollars really dictates how a project is is executed. And the problems in, in that sphere happen when the execution is not to the liking or doesn't fit the needs of the people that it's meant to serve. And so the projects that I ended up really enjoying working on were ones where the people on the ground who were the ones being served had as much say in the in the execution of the project, in the deployment of the funds. And that type of work took me to, to some 45 uh, countries. Al- along the way, however, I, I began to take photos. I began to, to shoot film and video. And, you know, in, in the year 2011, when I was starting to figure out how I wanted to make my first feature length, like long length documentary, I came across an issue that I'd, I'd studied and seen overseas, but I was shocked to realize that it existed to the degree it did in the U.S., and, and that was farm labor abuse. And it wasn't just the fact that farm workers in the U.S. have always been marginalized, you know, from from the first role of, of slaves as being the farm laborers, building the agricultural economy. At the same time, it, it was it was hard to imagine that in that year, 2011, some of the worst human rights abuses that I'd seen overseas, like modern day slavery, uh, sexual harassment of women, really egregious examples of, of, of indentured bondage really existed, you know, in pockets of the U.S. And it took me to a place in Florida called Immokalee, uh, an old Seminole settlement, where there was a group of, of largely um, Guatemalan, Oaxacan, Chiapan, and Haitian pickers called the, the CIW. Um, the CIW, a small group of tomato pickers again, they forced the large buyers of their tomatoes like Walmart, McDonald's, Burger King to use their power as consumer brands to radically transform the lives of farm workers. And so Food Chains was born. It's a, really a David versus Goliath story of this small group of tomato pickers battling the largest companies on the planet to totally transform the way product was grown, sold, and the way the workers on the ground were treated. And like you said, we were really lucky to have Eva Longoria and Eric Schlosser as producers and Forrest Whitaker as a narrator. So interesting. And that that must have been near and dear to you, because from my understanding, you're, you, you came from uh, a, a sort of like a lineage. I think your father was a tomato breeder. Is that correct? Exactly. Yeah. You've done your research, Connor. Thank you. My my my, my dad was a, a tomato scientist. And so when I grew up in California, I very much grew up in the industry. but I didn't see and know of the the human rights abuses that existed amongst the the on the la- the level of of laborers, you know, mainly because a lot of those issues still to this day are hidden and are considered like deep dark secrets. And it's the only way that the agricultural economy um, exists and persists, and it's the only reason why our food prices are lower than any other countries. Yeah, can you give us some context to that? Because I think you're you're very apt in saying that, for a, the, the large part, that is hidden, right? I think you know most of us walk into grocery stores and we're completely removed from any process. And I, you know, I think I've largely seen 
people that become activists for you know the 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 meat industry the poultry industry or you know the 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 grain and vegetable industry and it usually gets done in a very interesting way it's almost like trying to shell shock people by by putting stuff up on social media that's just you know heinous and, and whatnot and and expecting people to to really want to be a part of the cause and i i think that there are many 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 different ways in which we can start to reveal some of the atrocities that are happening sort of behind the scenes but i'm curious if you can just give the listener a glimpse of some of the stuff that you talked about in food chains and uncovered specifically maybe about the agricultural industry and and um, you know the vegetable industry and, and how that process behind the scenes affects the way that we consume food as consumers. That that, that that's a, a a great question. And in a nutshell, as 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 I referenced, you know, America's might in the 1800s and early 1900s was built on the power of our agriculture, and that was fueled almost 100% by by slave labor and then indentured um, bonded labor through the early 1900s. People might remember or, or have heard of a, a brief period in the 60s and 70s where, where farm labor had begun to change for the better because of the work of Dolores Huerta, Cesar Chavez, the United Farm Workers. But in the 80s, there was a gigantic consolidation of the supermarket industry. And bear with me for a second, because in the 70s, there were 70 or 80 or 90 different supermarket chains across the U.S. You know, now there are just literally seven that control about 80 percent of the market. And what's that what that's done is it's created a tremendous amount of downward pressure because those supermarkets compete against each other based on price and they buy large volumes for very low prices. And so the effect of that has been that for farmers, the prices of agricultural crops hasn't changed in 20 plus years and adjusted for inflation, it's actually gone down. So farmers are making less. What that results in is agricultural wages being stagnant. Now, people like to frame agriculture as, as an immigration issue, whereas Except for a brief period in the 1930s when a lot of refugees from Oklahoma moved to California, farm labor has always been the provenance of people who were willing to work for almost nothing and at the same time were willing to put up with a severe amount of, of human rights abuses. And because we go into a grocery store and everything is clean and fresh and because we think we're buying things that are organic we think that they're going to be totally cruelty free but organic food doesn't necessarily mean that people were treated well or paid well and that's not a part of the definition at all and the reality is on the ground you know many of the 3 million agricultural workers in America are being paid less than minimum wage after deductions for housing for busing uh they have to put up with conditions that no American-born person would put up with. And they basically uh, have to work much, much harder than any of us that have nine to five desk jobs. At the same time, they're absolutely critical for our food system. And you have to ask yourself, you know, why isn't this, you know, public knowledge? Uh, and that would that would cause a complete shift in the way our agricultural economy works. And it's it's a shift that you know would what it wouldn't happen with a lot of pushback without a lot of pushback mm -hmm. yeah interesting 
All right. Well, I mean, I would love to go deeper down that rabbit hole, <laughs> but just out of the, uh, you know, just just out of being mindful for time, I, I do want to circle back around to what we were talking about before and maybe just finish off with, you know, just some of the other stories that you mentioned, some of the other people that you follow uh, through 3100 Mile, uh, the the documentary, and and just give us some context to some of the spiritual lessons that maybe you learned along the way, or, or if not spiritual lessons, mindset lessons that you learned um, and that really stand out in that documentary. We spent time in Botswana with the Kalahari Bushmen, who are probably the oldest existing uh, civilization on earth. They can be traced back more than 125,000 years. And these are the people that, that per, do, do persistence hunts. They chase large animals for days away from watering holes and ultimately, you know, tire out those gigantic uh, um, herbivores on the savanna and are able to, to kill them and, and, and then feed their villages. And it gives insight into the way humanity evolved uh, from creatures on the savanna to now, you know, people living in, in metropolises. At the same time, you know, when, when we spent time with the Kalahari Bushmen, they said that it, it, the, the, the idea of this being an evolutionary tactic for humanity's survival was a misnomer. Uh, they didn't survive because they were good hunters. They survived because their feet drew energy from the earth. And they prayed and they prayed to their ancestors and to nature for the ability um, to catch these animals. And so it's interesting because from the very, very beginning, food and prayer and extreme physical activity went together. When we spent time with the Navajo, it was less about food than it was about movement and prayer going together. We spent time, lastly, with this very elusive sect of uh, Buddhist Zen Buddhist monks in central Japan in the mountain areas outside Kyoto. They're commonly known as the marathon monks. They pick one aspirant every 12 years to do a thousand days of running, split up into 10 hundred day uh, cycles. And those cycles each have a set mileage. The first cycle is about 11 miles per day. The last is about 56 miles per day. But here's the, the crux. If the aspirant doesn't complete his or her daily mileage on any single day, they have to take their lives. And so the question is, when you're undertaking something that has a penalty of suicide, you know, how can you do so without quaking in your shoes every single second? And, and that, that's, that's the same idea that we've been talking about. You know, they train for bliss and they know that their power when they hit obstacles isn't to focus on the worst case scenario, which in their case is death, but it's to harness their power of enthusiasm. It's to harness the idea, as you mentioned, of relentless optimism to turn outer obstacles into inner achievements. And so we mix the 3,100-mile race with Navajo, Kalahari Bushmen, and Zen um, or Japanese monks, and we interweave those stories into something that hopefully is, is a really uplifting experience for viewers. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. And I think those stories are, I mean, they're, they're surprising, they're profound, and uh, this has been a really wonderful conversation. I, I, you know, I wish that we could go deeper into some of these um, experiences that you have, that you've embarked on over the years. I mean, there's there's so much more to your story that we didn't even get into today that maybe we'll have to circle back around on in, in the future and and do another sit down. But 
for right now, Sanjay, thank you so much for joining me on the Men Talk Show. This was an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much, Connor. And since you're, since you're a new New Yorker, um, please do come out to the 3,100 mile course. I live just half a mile away from it. So um, just let me know. We're at 3100film on Instagram and people can look us up there and see exactly what's going on day by day in the race. And, you know, the location's geotagged and we'd love for people to come out and experience like from a distance as spectators, what these runners are achieving every day, every mile, every step. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I will definitely have to come out there and, and maybe at some point just run the circuit <laughs> a couple of times to see what they go yeah, through. Yeah, that would be awesome. You know, walk, walk them out in their shoes. And so, um, yeah, thank you so much. And again, for all the listeners that are out there, definitely go and check out 3100 Run and Become. Uh, it sounds absolutely amazing. I haven't watched the film yet, but uh, I think that's going to be on the docket for Vienna and I to watch uh, later on this week. And uh, don't forget to leave us a rating and review. If you know people that would be interested in this uh, podcast episode, definitely share it with a friend. It goes a long way into getting us into the ears and on the phones of other people. And don't forget to leave us a rating and review. Um, helps a lot. So if you've been tuning in uh, for a while and you've enjoyed the show, please head on over to your favorite platform, whether it's Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, wherever you listen to us, uh, and leave us a quick rating and review. So until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Join me next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual. Mm-hmm.